hearts are heavy. Lord, we love John and we love Judy and the Sasser family. These are dear people that you've saved and brought very close to you, Lord, who serve in so many different ways. John was such a special brother, encouraged so many, even just hours before you took him home the night before, praying and encouraging brothers and sisters in the Lord. And yet you, in your sovereign wisdom, decided that it was better for him to be with you. So, Lord, we pray for Judy and all the family members, Lord, who grieve over the loss of a loved one. We pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them, Lord. We thank you that you gave John faith, and it did not falter. And he is with you, Lord. We pray that we would remember him well. And that many would step up to serve in his place, Lord. Lord, thank you for men and women that you've saved down through the ages and take home. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're perfect. Comfort our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Entitled the sermon, God's Kingdom is Not of This World. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, you'll find this passage. One of my favorite sayings is during Jesus' trial, he's before Pilate, and Pilate there is accusing him and prodding him of many things. And Jesus finally burst out in John chapter 18, verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. God's kingdom is made up of believers. (laughs) It's made up of people that he has saved down through the ages and will save till he returns. And what's unique about the kingdom of God, both the spiritual kingdom that we're all a part of now and the future kingdom kingdom of God, physical kingdom of God, is that these people are known for their love of Jesus and their love of each other. It is something we work on now even in this spiritual kingdom. The night before his death, Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now listen to this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. It is the mark of his people. We love one another. We weep when you weep. We rejoice when you rejoice. It is the mark of the church. Today's church is drifting from these principles, isn't it? Everything is about hurry up and get something done and provide times and and ministries for us so we can have what we need. That's not the design of the church. The design of the church is for a group of people that God has saved, has chosen from the foundations of the world, has called them at a unique time, has gathered them together as one flock and put them in a family together. That's the church. And we're known by it. The verse says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by our love for one another. And yet, the church struggles to love one another, according to the Bible. Oh, a lot of people want to be loved, and they want to be loved their way. But do we love according to the Bible? Well, this is the problem in this first century church in Corinth. Paul has just concluded in his previous argument 
It was insisting that the church not judge outsiders, but judge one another. You remember that from a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 5. They were to, they were to deal with sin. There was an incestuous man there. He was to be put under church discipline. He was to actually be put out of the church with the goal of restoration because the church is to love God and truly love one another. And that means love does things that are hard from time to time. And now we get to this chapter 6, and Paul turns his attention to another sinful issue that needs great discernment, needs great judgment inside the church, not outside the church. He's moving from the sexual immorality of chapter 5 to chapter 6, where there's most likely thievery and greed and cheating and defrauding. And there's a lawsuit going on between two so-called brothers. And these issues are even more everyday matters, right? Uh, chapter 5 was unique, right? Here's a man living with his mother-in-law, a very sick and grotesque situation. But here, now we have people defrauding each other, people not loving each other. These are more everyday matters. It's probably, and most likely possible, these two men were leaders in the community. So here's two Men from a church who are probably leaders in a community in a great dispute going to the world's courts to solve their problems. The Corinthian church seems to do everything backwards. <laughs> they seem to run to the world and think very worldly, and then they have to be rebuked to come back to what the Bible says. That's the, that's the downfall of some people, isn't it? They don't know their Bibles, and so they react out of emotion, they, they react out of their flesh, and then they have to be rebuked and brought back to the truth. And this is this church. Well, in chapter 6, it's apparent that one of these brothers has defrauded another brother in some way. And the brother being defrauded has now taken that brother to the worldly courts. Now, these two brothers, think about this, they find themselves before the civil magistrates at a place called the Bema Seat, which is a court that's set up in the open marketplace in a very public way. Here's two Christians battling it out in an open court. And it isn't hard to read this passage and see Paul's righteous frustrations as these two brothers sin against one another and they disgrace the testimony of the church. Well, Paul, once again, <laughs> will make statements of great horror of what's going on. And when you read this, you go, you realize really quickly, he can't believe they're doing this. This is not the marks of a Christian. And so he'll use rhetorical questions. He'll use sarcasm. He'll finally challenge them to think about the magnitude of their salvation and why they're acting the way they are. And once again, Paul will strive to help this Corinth church understand their position in Jesus Christ and the damage they do when they act like the world. One other thought here of way of introduction is every time I study these situations that he's dealing with from chapter 5, chapter 6, and right on into the rest of them, he always is thinking with an eschatological, a doctrine of end times type of thinking. He's always thinking about the kingdom of God. And I think this text and throughout 1 Corinthians wants us to start living in light of a coming kingdom of God instead of being caught up in the daily things that so easily bog us down. 
And you will see Paul use this kingdom analogy over and over. Well, let's get into this text. Five thoughts this morning. The love of this present life will blind you to God's future kingdom. That's our first point. The love of this present life will blind you to God's future kingdom. Look at verse 1 with me. Does any one of you, when he has a cause against his neighbor, neighbor would be in the church here, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Well, again, this chapter starts with a sharp statement, doesn't it? And just like chapter 5, he's focusing on the two men, but yet the bigger problem is the church. That's what he wants to highlight. Paul sees the church failing to live in light of a coming kingdom of God. And so he uses the rhetorical questions as he examines the church and their lack of ability to take the gospel, the great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let it change our living, change our lives And realize that there's a future reward that should motivate us. The intensity of verse 1 would sound something like this. I rewrote it. How can anyone who has a case against another take it for judgment before the unrighteous courts of the land and not before God's holy people? How could you do that, Paul is saying? How could you run to the world? The verbs are in the middle tense there, and so that means that this has been an ongoing problem. That's not these two guys. These others have not gone to the church, not gone to the word to solve their problems. They run to those who will be judged by the church. Now, one can see Paul's Jewish heritage coming out here, right? He has a, a very correct view of the law used under the new covenant. So Paul is not demeaning the Roman court situation, right, or the court system. He, he'll certainly engage with it many times before his death. But he's challenging the church in Corinth to settle things God's way. Settle things God's way. Notice in verse 1 the term unrighteous. He says, dare go to the law before the unrighteous. See that in verse 1? And then look at verse 6. But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. So notice the connection. The unrighteous are the unbelievers. The unbelievers are the unrighteous. And notice when you drop down to verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's clearly pointing out that there are people who don't belong to God. They're called unbelievers. They're called unrighteous because they haven't been made righteous by Jesus Christ. Make sure you catch that. We are not righteous because we do the right thing. Christians are righteous because we wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the gift God gave us. And so there's a clear distinction here. The world is unrighteous because they have rejected Jesus Christ as their own righteousness. We have not. And Paul is gravely concerned that the church would take things that belong to the church where we can solve that through the all-sufficient scriptures and run to the unrighteous to do this. The unrighteous are those who break God's law. That's how the Bible's always described them. They do not have the righteousness of Christ. They are called the ungodly. Unbelievers are those who reject God, that he has sent one who we can be saved through Christ alone. And so these same people will not inherit the kingdom of God, according to verse 9. Now Paul opens up his argument claiming that there are those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, who God is going to judge through his own people. 
I mean, that's, that's what the verse says, right? Verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So he's saying, look, there, there's those who will never inherit the kingdom of God. They won't ever experience the righteousness of Christ. And they're people that the church is going to judge. And you now are allowing them to judge you. It's just a huge question mark. Why? He, I think that's the way he's writing. Why? Why are you letting this take place? Verse 2 helps us get our mind around this. Middle 2 says, If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law of the court? Well, certainly, verse 1 is addressing this man who's being defrauded, but now 2 is really strongly emphasizing, Church, what is your problem? Why are you letting this happen? You even begin to see these rhetorical questions that come out of Paul in these next few verses. Don't you know the saints will judge the world? Isn't that an amazing thing? Notice he says this three times. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? He says it three times in this passage. And you go, did they know? Well, why would he not say don't you know if they didn't know? Remember, he was there for a year and a half, right? Preaching day after day, house after house, service after service to them. And so he speaks as that they should know these things. Now, notice Paul is going to use his theological ground here for not going to the world. And he's going to come to this eschatological view of things to tell the church why they will someday judge the world. And through the church, um, we, we know that the church was being, going to start persecution. Shortly after, there's persecution coming. But the Bible teaches us that we will judge with Christ. And the ones who are going to be judged, and Paul is, knows, it seems to know this is going to happen, that they're going to fall under judgment. He himself will fall under judgment. His own death will become by the judgment of the world. Jesus Christ's own death will be passed down from the judgment of the world. He now is telling them the ones who are judged will now become the judges. This should be a motivation. This is this already not yet type of theology Paul uses. He talks about their great position. They're going to have this kingdom that will never end, that they'll reign and rule with Jesus Christ. That should be our motivation. That's your position. Although you're not there yet physically, you're spiritually there. That should drive your thinking. And so when Christ returns and he sets up his kingdom, believers throughout all authority will join in the ruling and reigning with him on his throne. You go, well, how do you know this? Well, Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, really alludes to this. John, in Revelation, takes it to, to a fuller understanding. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, he who overcomes, that's those who have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who have overcome sin by Christ alone, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne. Also, Overcome, as, as I also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. So in some way, though it's not completely uh, descriptive of how this is going to be, believers will have some responsibility of judging the world. So Paul's eschatology is that the saints will judge the entire world so they should be able to rightly judge one another right now. Does that make sense? You see what he's saying? If someday you're going to sit in judgment over the world, and we're going to see in angels here in a minute, 
Don't you think you have enough to do to make right decisions today? Notice the end of two says, if, you're, if the world is judged by you, aren't you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? If this is true, aren't you not competent? It's pretty sharp, isn't it? See, this is what happens when you disobey God's word. Eventually, God's word comes after you, and it's pretty sharp at times. What are you doing? Pastors aren't allowed to backhand anybody in their office, but there's times we want to. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you flirting with the world? I mean, you know, you'd like to have that paddle hanging on the wall that we used to have, right? Have you lost your, your mind? You think flirting with the world, engaging in sexual immorality, or, or defrauding and cheating one another, do you think that's pleasing to God? Do you think that's what Jesus died for? So you can just see the rage coming out of Paul. Come on. Why are we living this way? See, Christians get consumed with their present-day existence. We get consumed with what's happening today. We, we, don't, we lose our biblical Christ's death perspective of the future. I do too. There's times where difficult comes and you're just consumed and you go, wait a minute, Scott. That matters so little in the long run. Come on, think here. Know your Bible, Scott. God's going to take care of this. That person gets away with nothing. He will be judged. God will deal with this. Isn't this true? So I think like many Christians, Corinth loved the things of the world, and it caused them to be blind of God's future kingdom. Second thought, God's gift of his word in the church rescues us from the judgment of the lost. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judge, judges who have no account in the church? Well, again, Paul's eschatological views produce these rhetorical questions. Don't you know we're going to judge angels? Now, this is a very interesting passage. Many people have asked me through this through the years, and you go, there's really not another passage that tells us this. It doesn't say exactly that we are going to do it. But Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Scripture, so we believe every word of it. So what Paul says is true. We are going to judge angels, but there are a few verses that may help us. Jude, verse 6, says... The angels who do not, did not keep their own domain, this is probably speaking of the angels, the fallen angels of Genesis 6, but abandoned that, their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So these angels that didn't stay in their lane as God told them to do, but jumped out of that lane and, and, and intertwined with him, humans in that Genesis account... The Bible says they are held for great judgment on that great day. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So if you put these thoughts together, what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 3, in these verses, you begin to understand it seems that believers will judge angels with Christ. Now, I don't know what that looks like. But here's my thoughts. I, I think some way, in some fashion, will judge fallen angels and will be given authority over the elect angels. Because we are God's highest priority. We are made in his creation. And he'll let us rule and reign with his son forever. However, the main point here is the participation in God's kingdom as rulers and judges should detour us from running to a godless world. We see this happen all the time, don't we? Divorces end up in courts. Problems over neighbors end up in courts. And it just gets messy. The world doesn't understand biblical marriage. The world does, has nothing to do with the things of God. And so all kinds of problems come from this. And, and that may be the only way because of who you're married to or whatever may go on. But you know it doesn't work, right? You know it's disastrous for the name of Christ. And so Paul says, run to the church. That's what he's saying here. Verse 4, they have no account with the church. And so if all that's true, we should take these daily matters that we have in our ecclesiology, our doctrine of the church, and we should let our eschatology, the, the doctrine of end times, drive us to the church and to the word to say, hey, come help us. I think that's most of what our counseling is around here. It's people going through difficulties who want to know when they come in, they want to know what the Bible says, what's the church's stance, what's the biblical view of what I'm going through. Can you help me with it? Boy, you come into that attitude, great things happen. Some people come in to try to justify their position, and that doesn't work. Paul says, look, these people have no account over the church. They're the unrighteous. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and you're going to them for answers. This doesn't work. Paul reminds us that we're of a different age. We don't belong here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he wrote, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not our home. Second, First Peter says this, Peter said this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. That's quite strong language. Our citizenship is not here. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Let me tell you, fleshly lust is not sexual immorality only. It's being defrauded in how you respond. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the pagans. That's what Paul wants. He wants to see people keep their behavior excellent. So in light of verses 3 and 4... You, you see that our union with Christ and our future participation in the kingdom of God, how, how to get caught up in trifling matters, hurts the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? There, there's no other church in Corinth but this one. It's the most pagan place you've ever been. Make San Francisco look like Disneyland. 
There's one church there. The ones who know the truth. They're to be a beacon, a light of the gospel in that town, and they're acting like hell itself. Paul is outraged. He wants these believers to turn to the word, to turn to the church and settle their differences. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Well, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, I didn't write these things to shame you. (laughs) But in this verse, he's writing to shame them. (laughs) I think it's just pure and simple. I'm ashamed of you, how you're acting. His point is that the issue is shameful in light of the future kingdom that awaits you. The word, the word shame here points to the next question. And, I, and he says, isn't there one wise man among you who can make a decision? Remember, he is a little bit of biting sarcasm right here. Right? Remember, he's already told them, oh, you guys think you're so wise, right? The whole first couple of chapters was about, you know, oh, well, Paul, you know, you got a speech impediment, and we're about all these great orators, and we, we're so wise. I think he's just being sarcastic here. Inspired. <laughs> I think it's biting sarcasm. Corinth had prided itself in its wisdom, and now they don't have one person who can help these two brothers solve this, biblically. Where's your wisdom now? How's Plato working for out for you? See, Paul's exposing their true condition. You're not, you don't trust the church. You don't trust God's word. You perceive yourself to be wise, and yet you lack simple, small court issues. I can't do it. They're lacking in wisdom. They have poor understanding of their true place in Christ. They have poor understanding of the role of the church in the word. And listen to this. They've forgotten that Jesus has condemned the world. They forgot it. And think about this. That world crucified their savior. That court system, that Roman court system crucified Jesus Christ, and that's who they're running to. That's forgetting what God has done, isn't it? Well, notice in verse 6, he says, Brothers, go to the law with brothers, and that before unbelievers. So all of this has happened in the open court, the Bema seat court in the open marketplace. And Paul is emphasizing the sinful behavior. It'd be something like this. Here's what I think he's saying. You're airing out your dirty laundry to the world. And you're not taking it to the one place where it can be cleansed. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and doubtlessly Timothy was scared. Paul's in prison. He's been sent to pastor Ephesus. And, and, and Paul and Timothy's probably scared, and, and he does, he's probably upset with the Roman rulers who have arrested Paul and put him under house arrest. But Paul writes and says, first of all, then I urge you to, to have entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf for kings and all who are in authority so that, listen to this, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight 
of our Savior. Now, I know the context is Paul wants him to be praying for those who have put him in jail, knowing that Paul is sharing the gospel in the palace and people are getting saved. But I think there's a lot of truth in this verse. I don't think the Corinth people have been praying for their leadership. They're actually looking to their town leadership to solve spiritual problems, and they're certainly not leading a tranquil and quiet life in godliness. See, that's a mark of a Christian. We're not trying to draw attention to ourselves. We're trying to draw attention to Jesus. And we do that through our godly living. And the Corinth church was failing on all these counts. So to Paul, this was just tragic. The church was acting sinful in open court. There's no real difference between the people of God and the people of the world. They've lost their love for Christ, at least in a daily living. And they don't even recognize their own sinfulness. Now, I need to say something. I'm very important. This does not mean the church covers up sinful things in any way. You harm any of our children, we're taking you as far (laughs) into judgment as we can. You abuse somebody, we're going to turn you over to authorities. We're not talking about covering up, but we are talking about seeking counsel of God's word in the church and not running to the world to solve your problems. Come to the one who has given everything we need in the sufficiency of Christ in his word. But this wasn't the Corinth church. They were like so many churches today. They simply were so vested in the present day that they did not see or recognize that Jesus was the head of the church. He is the king of kings. And today the church spends most of its efforts trying to justify their positions. I'm reading article after article, all the battles from everything from homosexuality to women preachers to all that stuff that's going on in the American church today. They are battling to justify their positions. And they're twisting scripture or not even using scripture in many cases to try to justify what they're doing. They're so caught up in today's world, they're not thinking of the glory of Christ and what he's commanded us to do is with the church. And if there was a letter written by Paul, that one would be a hot one today. Well, the main point is these two believers should go to the church. There's men there that can help them. And they can help them recognize through the gospel what's wrong and what's right and help them handle things both in their attitude and their action. And I think what Paul is doing, he's just holding up this divine mirror for the church of Corinth to look into and recognize that there's changes that need to be made in their life. Before I move to my next point, since I've been here in these last six years, um, there's been several cases that come in, but there's two very prominent cases of dear brothers in this church who had situations of other Christians that there was a difficulty. Both times the men who stayed in this church, the others have left, but these men who stayed in this church, I am so proud of the way they handled things. They came to several of us elders and sat down and laid out the situation, brought the other person. And, and, and these brothers, they're still in this church to this day, they handled things God's way. In fact, they were probably wronged even more, but did it God's way. And there's not a week that doesn't pass that I pray for their business. That God will bless them for doing what's right. They're heroes to me. They didn't run to the world to solve the problem. They came and sought biblical counsel. And God continues to uphold them. Third thought, 
a worldly defeat or a Christ-like victory. Look at verse 7 and 8. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged or why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Well, in this verse, we see Paul speaking particularly about these two men. But then it goes broader, doesn't it? The entire passage is in second personal plurals. So all the yous are second personal plurals. So they're all y'alls. <laughs> that's how we would, you know, as country folks would, would interpret the Greek. <laughs> y'alls. So, he's, so, so the greater, the larger context is speaking to the church. And he's already told them that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? And, and that's what happens. And, and pretty soon, somebody chooses to have an, uh, an unbiblical divorce, and the church doesn't do anything about it, or they run and go do something, something else. And then somebody else says, well, I'll do that. And then it just spirals, and men don't think biblically, and women don't think biblically, and all kinds of problems begin to happen. And Paul sees this. He's trying to head this off. And you see how strong a point he makes here when he says, look, you're all losing. (laughs) The individual's lost because they're consumed with greed and pride. The church loses because now its testimony is marred because they didn't handle things the way God tells them. They didn't believe in the sufficiency of God's word. And so it's a loss, loss. That's what Paul says. But then he says, why not rather be wronged or why not rather be defrauded? How's that sit with you today? I mean, that's, that's tough. I'm, I'm just reading out the text, so don't get mad at me. You want to be wronged? Do you want to be defrauded? Just study church history. Christians are wronged and defrauded ever since the birth of the church. And if we, don't, if we are foolishness to think that that's not going to happen to us someday, we don't know our Bibles very well. All those who follow Jesus Christ will suffer persecution, the Bible says. Are we willing to be wronged? Listen to this. I think this is what Paul's after. Are you willing to be wronged? Are you willing to be defrauded for the glory of Christ? Man, that's a hard one. Everything in us says No. <laughs> This is my money. I earned this money. I bought this house. I built this business. I did all of this. I mean, Paul is going after it, isn't he? Is the testimony of Christ more important than your bottom line? You say, well, Scott, you're, you're a pastor. You don't understand business. Well, I do. <laughs> I own several through the years. And there's no more, I think, examples of pastors who are constantly wronged. We understand this. We understand to have our words taken and, and changed and, and, and people throwing things at you all the time, verbally and, and innuendos. And we understand this. But is God gloriousness to us to say, Lord, I'll do what's right and I pray you protect me, but I'd rather do what's right than lose my testimony. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. This is a passage not 
welcomed in the woke and CRT world. But it has much to do with living like Christ. The servants or slaves are told to be submissive to their masters in a very slave-oriented world. They're to be with all respect in verse 18 of chapter 2. They're to be good and gentle and so forth. But verse 19 really begins to play to what Paul's talking about here. For, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly is the word. That's what happens to us when we live for Jesus. You live for Jesus long enough, and biblically, you're going to be treated unjustly. I promise you. And notice he says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer, for if you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. So if you're sinning, it doesn't find favor with God. If we suffer in our persecution of some sort, light as it may be here in America, but we do this patiently with God's glory in mind, God says, I found favor with that. There's been times through the years, through church plants and difficulties in the church, where there was just issues that came up that there was just nothing I could do about. It. I remember sitting with Gina and finally filling her in what's going on and she says, okay, I'm going to talk to him. No, no, honey. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. Just let God handle this. It's hard. It's really hard to do that, isn't it? Because we wake up in the morning and we are selfish people, aren't we? And we have to battle that. Peter goes on, and time doesn't have me allowed to take through this, but you can look at this next one. Next set, 21 through 25, is all how Jesus Christ suffered unjustly. When reviled, he did not revile in turn, right? When he suffered unjustly, he kept entrusting himself, what? To the one who judges righteously. That's the mark of the Christian church. Could it be the Lord tarries enough where they lead us out of this building with our hands cuffed for doing nothing but preaching God's word? It's happening all over the world. Why not here? Are we willing to suffer for Jesus? Go back to our text, verse 8. On the contrary, you, yourself wrong, you, yourselves, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. With Paul, great, this great intern, intensity, this great strong adversative uh, uh, conjunctions here, he responds by saying, look, you're, you're just acting like the pagans you're around. You're driven by greed and fraud let alone sexual immorality that was in the last chapter. And you let it stay right in your midst. No wonder you're doing this. And I think Paul is implying and warning the church that such behavior is shameful. And it's not to be tolerated. See, you're either going to have a worldly defeat or you're going to have a Christ-like victory. Which one will it be? Fourth, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know? All these guys you're running to, all these people you think have all the answers, all this wisdom you think that such and such show on TV or commentator or news guy or whatever else, you think that he has all this. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, now we see where Paul charges forward with his soteriology in his eschatology. He's going to say, but except for some of you, he's going to talk about salvation because the kingdom of God is now worth our living. The future kingdom of God is worth us living out our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation. Because the rest of the world doesn't get it. And he takes the terms of immorality of chapter 5 and he combines them with the, with the godlessness of of chapter 6, these first eight verses, and he poses this strong rhetorical question, don't you know they will not go to heaven? And they're acting like it. Don't act like them. So just don't miss that connection to verse 1. Remember way back in verse 1? Dare go to the law, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? It's the same group. Can you imagine someone, Christians, going to have some pagan solve a spiritual issue that you need to solve through the word of God and through the church, and that pagan someday you'll stand there as God condemns him to hell? It kind of really puts things in perspective, doesn't it? What is there that the church in the word of God, particularly the word of God using the means of men who know the word of God, what is there that cannot be solved? The Bible is either sufficient in everything or everything's free game. Notice Paul returns to this eschatological instruction. It's about those who will get the kingdom of God and it's about those who won't. The righteous are those who have been made justified by Jesus Christ and this results in consistent godly living. The unrighteousness, unrighteous, they have not the righteousness of Christ so they live according to their flesh. They make judgment according to their flesh. And Paul warns them and I think he's warning these two brothers as well as the whole community don't act like people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. See, I think the warning is really real. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be judged into everlasting darkness. That the Bible's clear on. Another thing the church is struggling with in America. Annihilation and, oh, God's just so full of grace, he's just going to poof them. Jesus himself says, the, the, the fire's never quenched, the worm never dies. <laughs> I don't know how they can get to that, but when you don't care for the word of God, you just make it say whatever you want. But that's not reality. This is a real warning. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means they will be judged by Christ and his church. And so he says, don't be deceived. He's trying to tell these Corinthians, stop deceiving yourself and allowing yourself to be deceived by continuing to have the same type of behavior of those who are going to hell. Believe in the power of Christ. The power of Christ is real, brothers and sisters. It's so real, it takes unrighteous people and makes them righteous. It takes godless people and makes them godly. That's power. It takes those right in this room who deserve hell's fire and gives us heaven's streets. It's amazing, isn't it? 
is powerful. It's powerful enough to change you from the inside, change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, which would change your outside. Peter said this, for by, by these he, God, has granted to us his precious magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of his divine nature. The spirit of God lives within you. And this and this, having escaped the corruption that is of this world by lust. We've escaped this. We're new creatures, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. James chapter 2 and chapter 3 talk about, look, our faith produces deeds. Show me your deeds and I will show you faith, right? See, the inheritors, the righteous inherit the kingdom of God is very recognizable. The inheritors of the kingdom should be recognizable. Oh, that's a kingdom person. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a kingdom person. That's a king. We should, it should be recognizable. Our works don't save us. There's a result of it. He prepared them in advance right for us. But there's also works that identify the lost, right? He goes down through a list real quickly here. I don't want to linger on this, but you've seen this list before, right? They're very recognizable too. Those who don't inherit the kingdom, he calls them fornicators. This is sexual immoral people. Generally, probably fornication is held to the unmarried. Fornication is a rejection of God and should be rejected by his people and those who continue in it. And, and if they don't confess and repent of it, there's no way they belong to God, right? He's just saying they're not part of that. That's not part of the kingdom. There's no sexual immorality in God's kingdom, we're free from that sin because Jesus paid for it and we're living in perfect righteousness. He says idolaters. Well, this is any of those who worship false gods or a false view of God or a false religious system. Not just simply falling down before an image. You see, God won't share his glory with another. So those who attempt to share that glory cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. You want to worship money and your, your, what people think about you and well, I was defrauded and, and, and all of that. That has its own idolatry to it as well. He goes on to adulterers, and this particularly has to do with married people. Particularly married people who give something away that only belongs to their partner. It's an act of intimacy, intimacy given to someone that it doesn't belong to. See, this sinful act disgraces, think about this, disgraces the beauty between Christ and his church. And displays no desire for the kingdom of God. Effeminate. Malikos is the Greek word. It's a tough word. It literally means a male who is soft or unmanly. One of the problems in Corinth was they would find these boys and give them to rich men. And their life was dedicated to immorality. I mean, Corinth was a nightmare in an immorality and in godless living. And, and, and even that, as I read so much on the more than I wanted to read on this, young men started to see what those young men were doing, and their sinful minds wanted to mimic them. And so they learned to make themselves effeminate. Paul says this has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. God created man, male and female. Jesus Christ reinforced that in Matthew chapter 19. That's how he made them. And if we teach anything else, we're, we're going against God on that. 
And yet the church all over America is caving on this. And you say, well, isn't that homosexuality? Well, certainly it's tied to it because the next word he says homosexuals. This refers to a bandit of, of normal male and female relationships. This would take in every immoral aspect of the homosexual life. In Paul's day, homosexuality was just rampant in Greece and Rome. In fact, many of the philosophers that they held to were involved in homosexuality. And I think this is why he's pointing this out. And if you think, well, Paul's homosexuality is probably just from his Jewish roots. It probably goes back to Leviticus and some of those. Read Romans 1. He's absolutely dead clear on homosexuality. Now, you know that we love people, right? But you, we can't accept sin, and you can go homosexuality or you can go defrauding. You go, maybe the defrauder is okay to come to church. No, both are outside of God's will. Both should be cho- shown what God says. They should be led towards confession. We should pray for their repentance so that they can be among us and walk with us. That's the goal. That didn't seem to be the goal of Corinth. The kingdom of God is made up of the family of God. Think about this. And the family of God resembles and reflects the Father. <laughs> That's what the kingdom of God is. Verse 10, the list here reflects a little more of the men of the chapter. He says thieves is the next one. Men caught in great sins of greed and willing to defraud in order to gain others. Well, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a family that has all things together in Christ. The covetous is the next one. Well, this is so dangerous because it loves company. Coveters love coveters. If you're around a coveter, pretty soon you'll start coveting. You'll start desiring something. You've got to keep up with the Joneses, that type. And so thieves and those who covet are, are not characteristics of an inherited kingdom of God. There's no place for that. The kingdom is made up of those who die to self, not steal. <laughs> Drunkards, this is those who give up their self-control and live in a false reality. Drunkenness destroys families, but the kingdom of God is made up of the family of God who love to line up their affairs under the king of kings, not not live in some false reality and drink away problems. Oh, the kingdom of God is made of people who say, oh God, you are the answer for my issues. Revilers, these are those who destroy with their tongues and wound with words. Out of the wicked heart comes hate. But the kingdom of God is made up of those who offer from their lips sacrifices of praise, endless praise to God, not destruction of other people. Swinders is the last one. These are those who take unfair advantage to seek out and promote their own financial gain. They love to extort and bezel, and they live in a false way of life. But the kingdom of God is made up of those who speak the truth in love and exhort others to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Not taking something that doesn't belong to you. So Paul finishes verse 10, stressing that these people who practice these things, who don't repent, who persist in such sin, they have no part of the kingdom of God. And that's who you're going to for your wisdom? Last thought. I'm going to have to come back to this next week, but this is the crescendo. The power and wisdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. (laughs) Isn't that great? Which one were you in there? Maybe you got a couple of them in there. Maybe all of them applied in some way or another. 
Jesus sure says that if you lust upon a woman, you're an adulterer. That probably got every man in here. Ever want something you don't have? You're in trouble. See, such were some of you. But this, this is probably one of the greatest statements in Scripture, isn't it? There's hope for us swindlers. <laughs> right? There's hope for us who covet things. There's hope. This is, this is a great statement. This is what salvation did. This is the salvation message that was brought to the Corinthian church as Paul preached the gospel. <laughs> such are some of you. When Paul comes to Corinth, there wasn't this promising aspect of a great blossoming church here in Corinth. It was full of homosexuals, swindlers, liars, cheaters. It was full of all that stuff. He didn't go, wow, this is going to be a great church plan. He comes into the wicked of the wicked, isn't he? And he's able to say, such were some of you because I was there. I preached the gospel and you repented and you now love the Lord. Start acting like it. What a beautiful statement, isn't that? Let the vices of 9 and 10 go. You were once just locked down with those vices. You desired their values, that you know they were opposite of Christ. But God, through his wisdom and power, in the working of the Spirit, look at the verse, working of the Spirit, turned you away from those things and made you a member of Christ's church and a, and a citizen of the kingdom of God. Three times he says, but you were, but you were but you were. Notice, you were washed. Excuse me, you were washed. This is regeneration of the Spirit, Titus chapter 3. You were sanctified. This is a work of God setting you apart. Initial sanctification takes you out of the world. You no longer belong to this world. You are mine. What a beautiful thing. And then he says, you are justified. That means that God declared you Righteous. And only the righteous inherit the kingdom of God. This is what he does. Look how powerful this verse is. He's bringing his soteriology and his eschatology together to strengthen us to live for the Lord. There's a kingdom coming for the righteous. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe you'll rule and reign with Jesus? Do you believe you'll stand in his presence and act perfect in his righteousness? Then strive by God's grace and mercy to live that way now. That's what he's after. Die, live like dying people. Live like dying people. John Nero, the night before his death, was in a prayer meeting with people. Live like dying people. We have a kingdom coming. Let's pursue it. Father, thank you for this time together. These are challenging texts, Lord. They're one after another of difficult issues. And yet the answer is the gospel. The answer is this, this gospel that has changed us and can sustain us and can solve our problems. And, and you've given us a family, a church family, that we can work through these issues when we have them, Lord. And we have your Bible, this word that's all sufficient for everything. Lord, cause us to run to it. Let us not be defeated by the world. Let us have victory in Christ. Lord, help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.